you would turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, I hear pages rustling, Colossians chapter 4, we're in the last chapter of Colossians, believe it or not, we've arrived, right? Hopefully you will uh, look at Colossians maybe in a a deeper or a newer way as a result of this series, as we uh, begin to kind of close out this series, as we look at this final chapter over the next few weeks. We're in Colossians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to look on a pew Bible, a Bible in the rack in front, on the, in front of your chair. Uh, we're on page 985. And we have just seen, at the end of chapter 3, spending several weeks on relationships. The husband and wife, the, the parent-child, the, the employer-employee. And now we again transition in chapter 4 to looking at how Paul closes his letter. Now many times you may be characteristically of thought when you read the end of epistles or letters in the New Testament. Well, I've kind of gotten through the good part. Now just to say I completed the book, let's read through the end of the book. How many of you have often approached uh, your reading of the, uh, uh, the epistles like that? None of you, you're all so spiritual. Good job. (laughs) Um, Well, I know if I have, you probably have. So, uh, but there is so much meat in here that we need to look at. And what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks is life in the family of God. What does life in the family of God look like? And I want to ask you, what does life in your family look like? If I were to ask you to describe what characterizes your family, for instance, what would you say? Maybe you would use adjectives or or use descriptions. Maybe you'd say, my family's very fun-loving. My family, you know, we're, we're busy, we're always on the go, or my family, we're sports fanatics, or man, we're passionate about everything. Everybody has a strong opinion about something, and, and we love debating around the table. Maybe you'd say the opposite of that, my family's very laid back, easygoing. You know, uh, our hobbies are reading, doing quiet things. Maybe you'd say we have an uptight family. What characterizes your family? What if I were to ask you what activities characterize your family? Maybe getting a little more specific, maybe you'd say, man, we are an outdoors family. We love the outdoors. We go hiking, we go hunting together, we do all these things together. Maybe again, you'd say, we're, we are kind of an educational family. We really, we love reading, we love learning together, we love Uh, going to museums together. There's many things that can, activities that can describe our families. But what if I were to ask you, what is to characterize the family of God? What is to characterize Christ's church? You're going to have an opportunity if you're in a connection group um, to, to talk about some of these things tonight and this week. But what would you say is to characterize the family of God? Would you say things, even from reading through the book of Colossians, maybe some things have stood out to you uh, in our study together, that you now have a greater perspective of, of what is to characterize Christ's church, Christ's body? 
Maybe you describe the family of God as Christ being the head, the leader. Maybe you describe the family of God as needing to be gospel-focused, centered on what Jesus has done for his people and what he desires to do through them. Maybe you'd say, man, the family of God is to be characterized by a love for one another or by an evangelism, by discipleship, by prayer. On and on the list could go. Yet many times, life in the family of God is characterized by bickering, by opinions, by hobby horses, by seeking out our own comfort. Today, we're going to look at two crucial aspects that must define the family of God. Without these two aspects, the power of the church will be lost. And what we're going to see today is that the family of God must be defined, here are the two aspects, by purposeful prayer and purposeful living. Let's say this together. The family of God must be defined by purposeful prayer and purposeful living. Now, are there other things that are to characterize the family of God? You betcha. But Paul, as he closes this letter, says, I'm going to put this in a a nice little nutshell for you as I conclude everything else I've said about what characterizes God's people and Christ's church. And I'm going to define it and I'm going to encase it in these two categories. So we're going to look at the first one today and we're going to look at the second one next week. We're going to begin by looking at purposeful prayer in verses 2 to 4 of of Colossians chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your wisdom and your guidance as we open the pages of Scripture. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us more of yourself. Teach us more of how we are to live life in the family of God. Lord, with one another and also that vertical relationship with us as individuals with you. Father, help us to go back to these basics that are so easy to forget. Lord, so easily we build our lives on the wrong foundations. Lord, so easily we build our churches on the wrong foundations. So Lord, I just pray that you would be with us today as we know you are and that your Holy Spirit would would actively be at work as we know you promise that your word does not return without accomplishing its purposes in jesus name amen we're going to look first of all at purposeful prayer let's read verses two to four together Um, follow along silently with me as i read and then we're going to get into this it says continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We see here a perfect description of purposeful prayer with God's people. 
And what we're first of all going to see regarding purposeful prayer is that purposeful prayer is an engaged prayer. It's an engaged prayer. He simply says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Has the idea of, of a continual steadfastness of prayer. Not just for a week, not just for a day, not just for a year, but we are to be people of prayer. We are called to be devoted to prayer. That's another way of translating this word, continue steadfastly. Another way of saying it, and maybe your translation you have says it this way, be devoted in prayer. This is a full devotion. For instance, do you remember in the book of Acts when, when the church was established and, and uh, the church, man, it was going full force. You have the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls were added to the church. And, and the church was continually growing daily. And then what happened? There arose a dispute in the church that, that some of, the, um, some of the, 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 the more Hellenist Jews felt like they were not being provided for. And what did the elders of the church say? In Acts 6.4, which will be on the overhead, it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. Now it wasn't that they ignored the problem, but as you probably know if you're familiar with the, with the the story of the early church in the book of Acts, they established deacons to be able to meet those physical needs so that the elders could continue to focus on the spiritual direction of the church. They were to be devoted. Many times we are devoted to one or the other. Man, our, our scripture study is going really great, but man, our prayer life stinks. Our prayer life is going uh, pretty good, uh, but, but our, our, our word of God, our study is lacking. Have you ever seen that waver in your life? Many times we also think, okay, well, that's great because that's talking about elders. That's talking about the spiritual leaders of the church. Yeah, man, they need to be devoted to prayer. They need to be devoted to the study of God's word. But let me ask you, what about you? You see, it's not just the pastor's job, it's not just the elder's jobs to be devoted to prayer. In fact, we see the kind of devotion to prayer that Paul speaks of when we open up the very book of Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, we thank God. Always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we, what? When we what? Pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. In verse 9, and so from the day we heard, heard about how they were, the gospels at work among them and through them, it says we have not ceased to what? Pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Can I ask you, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, can I ask you, uh, is, does that describe your prayer life? I mean, you're praying for one another, you're praying for, for this church, you're praying for God's people worldwide. 
that they would have a greater understanding of the knowledge of what God has done through Jesus and, and how he desires to spread that gospel to the ends of the earth, to the neighbors, to the co-workers, and that God would fill our hearts with that understanding so that we would walk fully pleasing him. Does that describe your prayer life? Or is your prayer life filled with, please help this medical need, and please help this, and please help me at my job here? Not that those things are wrong, but if that's the extent of our prayer life, man, we're greatly missing the biblical ideal. We're called to be devoted to prayer. But we also see that we are not only called to be devoted to prayer, we are to be devoted. How are we to be devoted? We're to be devoted to prayer by being watchful. That's what the text says. Continue steadfastly in prayer or be devoted in prayer. How? This is the first way. By being watchful in it. You may say, what in the world does that mean? How am I watchful in prayer? Do I just, you know, kind of just uh, think about it or watch somebody pray and and, and maybe it'll rub off on me. Now this word that's used is, is used very specifically. You see, we are to be watchful in light of the crucial hour that we are living in. Do you remember when Jesus took his disciples and he was about to be betrayed and he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane and what did he tell his disciples before he, he went further to pray by himself? You remember? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. And then as they continue to fall asleep, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, this word watchful is a word that is specifically used in the New Testament of the crucial hour that we need to be awake and aware. In other words, we are to be in prayer in light of the last days that we are living in. In fact, again, jumping back to Colossians chapter 1, we see the reality of the last days in verses 26 and 27. It says, The mystery that has been hidden for ages and generation, generations has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The promised Holy Spirit has come. Promise from the Old Testament. The last days are upon us. Skipping over to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, Paul desires that the, the Christian's hearts be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. There's that term again. What's God's mystery? It is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, it is Christ that was both 
prophesied and promised in the Old Testament that has come and been revealed in the New Testament. And guess what? Ever since Christ's ascension to the time that he returns is the last days. You see, that is why Paul, back in the first century, could say we are living in the last days. And we, 2,000 years later, can say likewise, we are living in the last days because we are awaiting the return of our Messiah. Matthew 24, 42, using this word awake, says this, Therefore stay awake, for you do not, do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Our prayers, therefore, are to be geared, as people who are living in the last days, are to be geared, not ultimately, about, my goodness, like Matt said, who, who's going to be the president come Tuesday night or in Wednesday morning, because, man, everything's going to ride or fall on that person. No, our prayers are we live in a greater kingdom. We have a greater citizenship. And no matter what happens, our prayers is that the gospel would go forward and that Christ's church would prevail in spreading the gospel because we know the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Amen? Are our prayers purposeful that God's work would be done both in us and through us and through his universal church. You see, we're devoted in our watchfulness in light of the crucial hour. But we're also devoted in our watchfulness in light of the overarching purposes of God. God is at work in this world. This is still, even though the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2 talks about Satan, he is he is a ruling uh, the, the course of this world right now, guess what? Just as that hymn says, this is my Father's world. God is still sovereign. The devil still answers to God. And we are praying in light of the realization that the purposes of God will be fulfilled regardless of, of controversy, regardless of, of persecution, regardless of what you read about in the Sudan, when you get that voice of the martyrs magazine, God's purpose are, is, uh, are prevailing. And God gives us the privilege to partake in his purposes. And one of the main ways he does that is through our prayers. It's just like our evangelism, which Paul will talk about in a few verses. Listen, uh, God knows those who are his own. He is going to win them with or without us. But guess what? He's given us the privilege to be partakers in being fishers of men. Are we going to be faithful stewards? God in his sovereignty has said, I am going to accomplish my purposes, but guess how I am going to accomplish them? Through the prayers of my children. So if we are not watchful in our prayers, if we are not devoted in our prayer life, we are not being faithful stewards of what God has given us.
You see, that makes prayer a lot more important than just praying for Aunt Matilda's toe, right? Many, many individuals say, well, you know, I don't go to prayer groups or prayer services because they are so boring. Maybe it's not because prayer is boring, but the way we're approaching prayer is boring. I like what one individual said. He says, to Paul, prayer is not simply an act of presenting one's personal wishes and desires to God. Rather, it is a way for believers to participate in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in history. Man, the stuff we read about in Colossians, God has given us the privilege to be partakers of that. Isn't that exciting? We are devoted to prayer in our watchfulness in light of the crucial hour, in light of, God, of, of the overarching purposes that God is completing in this world, and in light of the gracious working of God. Both for us and for his world. That's what enables Paul to say that we're to be watchful in it, not with pessimism, not with, oh man, this, world, this world's going to pot. Man, you know, this is going, you know, woe, you know, woe is me. How does it say that we're to be watchful? Th- with thanksgiving. That's the very thing that Paul said in, in his letter at the opening. He says, we pray and we are so thankful to what God is doing in your midst. Listen, we can pray even in controversy with thanksgiving because God's purposes are still being furthered, not despite, but through the difficulty. God doesn't all of a sudden say, "Uh uh-oh, look what just happened Now I'm going to have to come up with a plan B to try to work around that. No, God says my plans will not be thwarted. In fact, I use the very things that those who oppose me present. I confound the wisdom of man by using those very things to accomplish my purposes. That causes us to be thankful Do I need to remind you, and maybe you didn't know this, that when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, do you know where he was? He was in prison. He was in jail. And as he has those chains, and as as he's in prison, his thankfulness arises, not out of his circumstances, but out of the God in which he serves. This is not simply a personal thanksgiving for what we see going on in our lives. It is a thanksgiving for knowing the God that we serve. So I hope you see this morning from verse 2 that we are to be people that are engaged in purposeful prayer. But we also see as we read further in verse 3, it says, At the same time, pray also for us. 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So basically what the scriptures are telling us is the second way to be continuing steadfastly in prayer, the second way to be devoted in prayer is not just to be watchful in prayer, but it is to have a prayer that is a petitioning prayer. A prayer that is praying for one another. Purposeful prayer is a petitioning prayer. It is a prayer for God's people to be at work, we see at verse 3. So while we are praying, being watchful and thanksgiving, at the same time, we are praying for God's people, for us. In this context, we're praying for Paul and those that are, are with him in the jail. This is a prayer for God's people to be at work. You see, our prayers are both to be vertical with what God is doing and, 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 and praying for God's will to be done, God's kingdom to come, as Jesus gives his, exa- his example prayer, the Lord's Prayer. But our prayer is also for us that we would be faithful as we seek to be the agents of God's working on this earth. Our prayers are vertical, but then also horizontal. So what does verse 3 tell us that prayer is not? Again, verse 3 shows us that prayer is not just temporally focused. It's not just focused on the immediate. Again, if it was focused on the immediate, Paul would probably be saying, pray that I get out of jail. Prayer is not just a prayer for health. Health is very important and we need to be praying for one another's health. But Paul could easily have said, pray for, uh, pray for me that I maintain my health while I'm in this situation that is not a desirable situation. And it's not just for individual needs or perceived needs. I like again what an individual said. He says, in prayer, one is able to move away from beyond one's self-centeredness in the discernment of the urgency, and I'm going to teach you a word here, of the eschatological moment. You know what that word means? Have you ever heard the word eschatology? It, it basically means what God will be doing. Things that are to come. So in other words, we are concerned and we pray for those temporal needs, but everything is bathed, is wrapped in the context of the eternal. Everything is wrapped in the context of the eternal. That's one of the reasons that... that Sometimes I have a problem with individuals that will, for instance, pray for healing. And these individuals will say, well, God, I'm claiming your healing. I'm claiming this for my brother, for my sister. Well, what are you claiming? Are you claiming your will? Are you claiming your desire? 
What if God's ultimate desire is to do a work through that illness and that person never gets healed? You see, what should we should be claiming is the sovereignty of God and being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and saying, God, we desire this to happen, but if it does not, King Nebuchadnezzar realized that God still sits on the throne and he is the one in charge, right? Our prayers are to, to be bathed in the eternal, in what God is accomplishing. And while I would urge you to pray for one another's needs, I I would also urge you to pray in addition to that. God, would you accomplish your purposes in that individual's life and use this to further your cause in that person's fear of influence and in this world. Folks, that's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is not how much I can muster to know that God is going to do a certain thing. Because many times, I don't know about you, but at the end of my prayers, I'm still clueless as to what God's desire is. And true faith keeps going saying, I serve a sovereign God and his purposes will be accomplished as I follow him. That's faith. And Paul is exercising that type of faith and urges us to exercise this type of faith in our prayer life. This is a prayer for God's people to be at work, but also as we look at this idea of of a petitioning prayer, praying for one another, this is a prayer specifically for the good news of the gospel to spread. Again, Paul's not saying, get me out of prison. Paul's not saying, change the, 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 the Roman guards. Paul is saying, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, as I'm in jail... And I don't have the freedom to go around and to visit you, church, in Colossae like I would desire or go to places that the gospel has not been proclaimed. Would you pray that the word of God has an open door? And guess what? That word of God may have an open door behind this locked door. Would you pray that regardless of my circumstances, God's word would prevail? I mean, that's the type of heart that enables Paul to say, hey, for me to live is Christ. For me to die, it's gain. What he's saying there, as as he writes Philippians, he's also in jail during this same period of time. He's saying, listen, if I die, then I'm with Christ and that is great gain. But if I'm allowed to live, guess what? I'm living for Christ. So whether I die or whether I live, it is about Christ, and it's a good thing. You see, prayer is not God's. We don't go to prayer somehow to try to change God's will to conform it to our will. We go to prayer to try to uh, say, God, would you change my heart? To desire your will. 
That's prayer. That's prayer. You know, you may be praying, we just got done looking at relationships, and you may be praying, God, would you work in my marriage? God, would you work? You know what? Maybe God is first wanting to work in your heart as an individual believer before he can work in your marriage. You know, maybe God, you're praying for for your children and there's controversy going on. Maybe God wants to work in your heart as an individual believer, not even a parent, not in the context of, of your child, but he wants to work in your heart before he ever deals with your child's heart. That is praying, bowing the knee to a God who is sovereign. We serve a God who is far, far too small. Paul here prays for an open door for the gospel. And why could Paul pray for an open door for the gospel? Because he has seen the gospel at work already. Again, you jump back to Colossians chapter 1. He says, pray for an open gospel uh, in our passage uh, for the word. We'll look at what he's already seen happen. Verse 5 in chapter 1, because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the what? The word, the same, same word is used for word. He's already seen the word at work. The truth of the gospel's already been at work. And as verse 6 said, it's already been bearing fruit. It's already been increasing. So Paul says, of course, the ultimate goal, our prayers need to be geared, that that word still continues to grow and to bear fruit. There's a confidence there that this has already happened, so therefore we can pray for its continuance. You know why a lot of times our prayers are weak? Because there's no, no really walk with God that is of any substance in your life. So praying to God you, is equated with sometimes praying to just some unknown person or, or maybe asking your friend for something. Because you have not seen the power of God at work in your life. And you can't see the power of God at work in your life unless you're aware of it and you are walking with Him. Again, if our God is small, our prayers will be small. So Paul prays for the good news to spread that there would be an open door for the gospel. The encouraging thing about this is that Paul is praying for this in the midst, in the midst of the oppression of Christianity. You see, Nero, Emperor Nero, was no friend to the Christians. They were weirdos back then. Christians back then, they would have been tolerated. See if this has a parallel to today. Christians in the first century would have been tolerated in the Roman Empire if they would simply have not said Jesus is the only way to salvation. 
if they would have said, our religion is one among many. And therefore, we will not denounce the Roman gods. We will not denounce the gods of those that Rome has conquered because they were an inclusive religion. But where Christianity got themselves in trouble, where the saints rightly believed and rightly stood for the fact that we cannot worship other gods, nor can we accept them. Because there is no other name given among men whereby men must be saved. Amen? Acts. Acts 4. You see, that's where Christianity is getting itself in trouble today. That in a pluralistic society where anything goes in any religion, uh, to take a stand on Scripture when it's not politically correct, that is going to bring trouble. But guess what? Paul says, man, the gospel is at work and let's continue to pray for open doors in the context of hostility. So again, we go back to the reassurance that no matter who gets elected or no matter what happens in this world, there will be open doors for the gospel. The question is, are you being watchful and ready to be able to, know, to, to maybe not have the comforts that we once had Back 30, 40, 50 years ago. Are you ready for that? Or are you living just a comfortable Christian life, not carrying your cross? See, Paul prays for that open door of the gospel, but he also prays regarding the content of the gospel. Again, in, in a day and age where it was not acceptable to say that that Christianity, that, that Christ was the, the one way. Paul says, no, I'm not going to diminish that. He says in verse 3, pray that God would give us an open door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. Again, we've already looked in chapter 1 and chapter 2 at those where Paul has used that term, the mystery of Christ, already. It's the mystery that once was, what once was veiled, but now is revealed. The work that God has purposed from time, from, from eternity past, to do through His Son. He prays for an open door to declare this mystery. And listen, it is on His lips because it is first in His heart. No soul winner magically or uh, no, no person wanting to share their faith magically does it out of the clear blue. I mean, it's something that is impressed upon the heart, a burden, a desire, the sense of need, of urgency that then is receptive as, as God brings those opportunities to be proactive to share the mystery of Christ. Paul prays for an open door for the gospel. He prays that he would be able to declare the content of the gospel. And he also prays that he would be faithful with the gospel. It's interesting, as he closes out verse 3, he says that I would declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. 
Another way of saying that is on account of which I have been bound. You see, he's not, again, not praying for release from prison. He's not praying, would, would, would I be able to explain myself enough that maybe the guards would, would continue to understand, okay, you know, let, let's, let's let him go. He's saying, I want to declare the same things that I have always declared, the very reason for which I'm in prison today. I'm bound because of this gospel that I still desire to proclaim. It's interesting, kind of the parallel, the parallel idea of being bound. You see, we are just as bound to declare the message as we are bound to Christ, aren't we? We've looked all over Colossians at our union with Jesus. We are bound to Him. If we're truly bound to Christ, are we not bound to the very message that has given us life to declare that? To be faithful stewards. And that's Paul's prayer. Because we see in verse 4, thirdly, a prayer for the gospel to be clearly revealed. He says, I'm in prison on account of the gospel But this is the prayer that I may make it clear, that I may make the message of the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. There's just three implications regarding this, uh, three implications regarding the gospel being clearly revealed. First of all, the clarity of the gospel is undergirded by prayer. Paul does not say that I may, uh, he does not say, send me my books so that I can learn a further word in order to convince these Roman soldiers maybe to witness to them. He does not say, help me to use a good illustration that maybe these prison guards would truly grasp (laughs) that would kind of translate to their culture. He doesn't say, make me more appealing. He doesn't say, hey, make me look more cool so that those guys would really listen to me. He doesn't say, hey, let's make the music more lively so that the gospel can be declared. He doesn't say those things. He doesn't say, let's put on kind of a light show so that the gospel can spread. He says, pray for me that I would make the gospel clear to them. You see, the clarity of the gospel is undergirded by prayer. So how does Covington Baptist Church have the greatest outreach program? By having the greatest prayer ministry. How does Covington Baptist Church have the most impactful worship services in in both the hearts of believers and and maybe those who are non-believers in our midst that they would hear the gospel through having a vibrant prayer ministry. Listen, most churches, including Covington Baptist Church, are weakest in prayer. It's just fact. 
But the very clarity of the gospel has to be undergirded by this very thing that we ignore, prayer. You see, why is prayer needed? Because we are not dealing with a human message, we are dealing with a divine message. We are not dealing with coaxing personalities and changing people's perceptions about an an inanimate object. We are declaring something that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to someone's heart. And if it's something that only the Holy Spirit can do, then should we not be on our knees pleading with Him to work? I mean, real, uh, even our 920 prayer services, uh, you know, I know that that's early, but that room should be packed just by application. You know, we should see pl- prayer clusters here, maybe after morning services of praying together for one another and for the situations we're in, and that we would be able to clearly reveal the gospel as God gives opportunity to us in those situations that we're in. I mean, what did Jesus say when he overturned the tables in the temple? He said, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. The thing that we're the least good at. The clarity of the gospel is undergirded by prayer. Number two, our faithfulness in proclaiming the word or the gospel, is empowered through prayer. Paul says, not only pray for me that I would make the gospel clear, but pray for me because this is how I ought to speak. In other words, what he's saying is not that I I need to to just use simple words that that, that people would understand the message because, again, we can use the the most simple presentation or the most complex, and people are going to get saved through both because it's God at work. It's not ultimately us. What he's saying here is that he has been given a divine responsibility to reveal that word that I may uh, which is uh, that I may make it clear is, is, is literally the word that means to reveal something. It, it, it's the same word talking about when, when one day Christ comes from heaven and he reveals himself. So what is hidden in the heart of the unsaved, we are given the privilege to declare and as God works in the heart and he takes off those blinders, the message is miraculously revealed to them and they accept it. So Paul is saying, it is my necessity to make the gospel visible to others. I have to declare it with my mouth. And the only way that we're going to be faithful in proclaiming the word is by being empowered through prayer. I mean, man, to, to, to be on our knees praying that God would, would, uh, would use us and then to be praying for one another that God would, would use them and to have individuals even in this church that you know are praying for you 
regarding maybe a relationship at work that you would be able to share the gospel as opportunity is opened. To, to just to have that knowledge that those prayers are going up for you is so powerful. Are you seeking that empowerment through prayer? Or are you seeking to live a faithful life in your own strength? Because we know through the testimony of Peter, don't we? What happens when we try to, try to live that life in, in self? I'm not going to deny you, Lord. And then he hears that, that crow or that, that, that rooster with three things the rooster does. Three, what is it? Crows? Whatever, yeah. <laughs> How many times do we have missed opportunities in sharing the gospel and the reason is not because we're not ready, the reason is because we're relying upon our own strength. We're not living wakefully. We're not seeking to live faithfully. That leads us to the third implication of verse 4. No believer is exempt from the necessity of prayer and proclamation. You're not exempt. I'm not exempt. None of us are exempt. That last phrase, which is how I ought to speak, he, Paul, Paul literally says, it is necessary that I speak. It is necessary. There's no choice. There's no, I don't feel like it. There's no, maybe another time. He's saying, I need your prayers Saints, I need your prayers, church, that as God opens those doors, we would speak.